What's up, everybody? Welcome to Game Over Montreal. I'm Andrew Berkshire, your host as usual, and uh, yeah, we're doing the usual thing. It's the same thing over and over again. It's uh, Groundhog Day on this show. It's the Canadians. They they managed to do this. It's incredible. Can't even get off pace for their 17 wins over 82 games. It might be down to 16 now, but let's get into the happy stuff. We've got two incredible guests with us today, Noah Bashir and Chris Watkins, so let's welcome them both in. How's it going? Well, I, I attempted to uncurse them, and instead I recursed them. So <laughs> you tried being positive; it didn't work. Yeah. I tried. Th- I thought I'll try a new thing. I'll be like, "Hey, the Habs might win." I never say that, and then <laughs> yeah, didn't work. Didn't work. But I can't really take responsibility. They're just as bad as they always are. So it's not me; it's them. Yeah, they have me in the box. The Blackhawks did lose to the Coyotes, <laughs> uh, and I think gave them their first two goal lead of the entire season uh, in the process of doing so. So, if there was ever a time to believe that like they can get back on the right track, that <laughs> was the time to do it. Well, oh, and man. that's it, right? I was like, okay, if we're gonna if we're gonna beat someone, it might be Chicago. Oh my God, we have a lead. Do we have a lead? Is this real? Check, like, rub my eyes. Check again. Check again. Okay, we do. But no, no, not even that. <laughs> no, they had a good second period. I'll say that. I thought they played really well in the second period, but again, like half of that was the fact that they were trailing, and Chicago's just not a great team either. I know they've been better since the coaching change, but you know, and Sam Montembeau, and as far as Sam Montembeau games go, that was probably his best performance of the season, except for maybe the game against Nashville. So like you wasted that too. I will say wildly entertaining end in how stupid it was. (laughs) (laughs) Remember when three on three was fun, you know, and it was like, cool creative plays and it's like we'll just crash into the net and maybe it's offside maybe it's not maybe it's goalie interference maybe it's not i feel like no matter what way the calls go on both the the <laughs> net crash and the offside it's like it's somehow a bad call i i turned to my husband who was smart enough to ignore the entire rest of the game and came down for like I think he came down for three minutes at the end to say like, oh, you're still watching? Because he was waiting to watch something on the big screen. And then, so he saw the net crash and he saw the whole thing with me. And I said, the fact that the call's going to go against Montreal because Hoffman's the one who crashed into his own goalie who finally had a decent night. Like, if, if it's a good goal, this right here, after they manage to take a lead and then blow it and then go to overtime is a microcosm of the entire half season because they're the ones who it could be a no goal, but him crashing into him will make it a goal. So, yep. Just, just yep. More. The metaphors just pile on everything that's a metaphor for the Habs messing up. <laughs> yeah, it was a. Uh... It was not an inter- interesting game overall for the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, the Chicago Blackhawks, I find it funny watching Chicago now because 
Like, there's been so much turnover on that team now. It's really just, yeah. like, Taves and Kane left, right? And I guess, like, you could say Debrinket as well, but I feel like Debrinket's still... He's not a new guy, but he's right. one of the new kids, right? He wasn't part of that core. Yeah, I mean, and it's weird because he came after, like, you know, the Sheen had sort of worn off of the Blackhawks dynasty even before, like, the off-the-ice stuff, but just, like, you know, he was a second-round pick, you know, wasn't, like, you know, the Blackhawks went into a full tank and got him in the top five or whatever. He wasn't expected to be the player that he is. And so as he's emerged as probably the Hawks' best player and definitely most consistent, you know, he's done it <laughs> in the sort of uh, turmoil that that is uh, overtaking the team. And so it's hard to sort of properly recognize how good he's been. Um, but it's also yes. just uh, – in the best iteration of this team, you know, he will probably be the second or third best player. Uh, and then, you know, Kane and Taves would be, you know, second or third line caliber players at this point, but use in strategic spots that allow them to still maximize them. I was still <laughs> very reliant on both of them because uh, uh, I don't know if you knew this, but the Blackhawks have a little bit of trouble scoring um, uh, to a laughable degree. Um, and they are the only, like, even – I wouldn't even say above average, but at least average offensive talents outside of Debrinket on the team. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, I guess Kubalik's pretty good, right? He he can put the puck in the net. He is, but I mean, the issue is one, unless he's playing on the line with like Tane or K, uh, uh, <laughs> Kane and Taves. <laughs> um, it, it's hard. It, he's not uh, a guy that's great at creating offense on his own, he's more of a plate finisher. And, right. and unfortunately, we don't have a lot of like great passers or great skaters on the team. And so uh, I think in the, I think he'd be a great trade target. And I think there's a lot of speculation that the Blackhawks would move him because they don't want to sign his uh, uh, extension. Um, but the talent just isn't on the team to probably maximize what he can do. Um, Debrinke is a little bit different just because he is more of a two way player. And so, yes, he can. Uh, put himself in position to score 30, 35 goals pretty easily, but then also play enough defense and sort of drive play on his own to justify like uh, playing next to Patrick Kane because he can complement some of his weaknesses and all of that. Yeah. So I, you're saying that Kane and Taves are like, you know, not what they used to be, which I totally get, and that they're they're not really scoring threats, but just and full disclosure, I have not been following them this season at all this year. If you were to transplant them onto the Canadians, not that I want either player, nobody misconstrue this. <laughs> how, where would they be in scoring, like ranking oh. for the Habs? Probably somewhere near the top, I'm guessing. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, because what Suzuki Suzuki has 19 points, which is leading the team. Uh, yeah, I would probably say one and two. Uh, like the guy they picked up off waivers is like automatically sixth in team scoring, I think is what I read. Oh, from Pitt, like, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's, it's not good. Well, yeah, but then what does that tell you about the team? <laughs> yeah, it's it's just not a good scene overall. <laughs> like, oh. I saw a bunch of people complaining that Pitt, like got so much ice time tonight because, frankly, he was real bad. Uh, he had a couple decent shifts in there, but uh, yeah. they got pounded while he was in the ice. Although, I don't know how much of that's his fault and how much of that is the fact that, like, Dvorak all season has just been getting absolutely demolished at even strength. And people were saying like, uh, like how come Caulfield's getting more ice time? And obviously he was getting some pretty cherry picked ice time in this game playing essentially fourth line minutes, 
but uh, he did actually, I didn't check in the third period, but heading into the like midway through, I think the third period, he was the Canadians leader in like expected goals for percentage and Corsi and all that stuff. So he was doing some good things out there. Still not, you know, completing plays, I would say like there's something going on with Caulfield. Maybe it's just like the yips where like I've never seen a guy as talented as that mishandle the puck so often. And it's just like regular passes right onto his tape and it just like flops right over his stick. And it almost looks like there's nothing that he did wrong. It just keeps on happening to him. But it, when it, it keeps on happening and happening and happening, like something's got to go wrong there. Like I was messaging a, a guy I know who works for the Canadians and I was like, does he use like a junior stick? Has it got too much whip on it or something like that? Like a pass hits it and then like flexes on him and it goes through his blade. Like something's going on there. But uh, I, I feel like he's doing some good things, but just can't put it together right now. Yeah, I mean, they mentioned it on the Blackhawks uh, uh, feed that I was watching. Uh, and, and they said the exact same thing. It, you know, they mentioned uh, there's a chance on the first period where I think he was just like wide open in front of the net and just like whipped it all together. Um, and then was able to, to, to get on the score sheet later on. But they still sort of mentioned that he didn't look like the confident player that they had saw, you know, in junior and then even in the playoffs previously. Um, and they, they were also trying to figure out what was, what was wrong. And I don't know if it's a matter of, you know, maybe he got called out for shooting too much previously and, you know, getting sent down and, you know, doing whatever it takes to not get sent down, which is not, you know, you, you want a player like that just shooting at every opportunity, you know, not caring, you know, only focusing on the score sheet and not caring about the consequences. And just like, especially on this team where no one else could put the puck in the net you almost want them to sort of over-index and shoot too much. Uh, and I think he, someone might have pulled him to the side and said, you're doing too much, pass the puck, move it, X, Y, Z. And, and now he's thinking about the game uh, in an unnatural fashion. So it wouldn't be the first they, time the Canadians uh, ruin a player mentally. You know? that, that's it. Now that you're saying that, I'm sitting there going, are we observing the beginnings of the destruction of Cole Caulfield's Please, no, we have so little. We have so little. Well, I would I would say on the positive side, the management structure has changed, right? So, like, even if Caulfield is down in the dumps by the end of this season, it's like he's going to be unsalvageable after one year. You know, uh, obviously not the same level of player, but, I mean, P.K. Subban made it through years of Michel Therrien before he became a dump-it-out machine. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Subban is also uh, famously stubborn, so it took a long time for messages to get through the wrong messages, unfortunately. But you know, and, and exceptionally confident. Like, I don't know yeah. that you expect everyone to have the extreme level of swagger and confidence that Subban wonderfully had, and didn't let them break him down <laughs> as quickly. But um, you know, Andrew, you were saying like watching the, the those two teams and I was just thinking like I was expecting I mean I know that both teams are sort of shells of who they have been but it's like oh it's a Blackhawks Habs game and then you sit down and you watch it and you're like this is a Blackhawks Habs game like it was very very meh yeah you, just I was thinking the whole game of I remember I can't remember what year it was now I think it might have been 2010 11 
And there was a Blackhawks Canadians game near the end of the season. And it was the game that the Canadians secured their like spot in the playoffs that year. And mm-hmm. I believe Subban scored the game winner in overtime and rushed down the ice and went to like bump with Carey Price and Price just like the body checked him and demolished him at center ice. And it was like, I that, remember that. yeah, it was a phenomenal yeah. hockey game. Like both teams were just like on it. Right. Uh, the Blackhawks were at the peak of their cup contending years. The Canadians were a legitimately really good team. Uh, that was like a really fun year until the playoffs. So it, 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 I was thinking about that almost the whole game, like how far they've fallen. And, you know, despite the controversy that the Blackhawks have been embroiled in, at least they won something where the Canadians are just, they got to this low without actually getting anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They just, well, cause, cause they never actually tried to get anywhere. They just tried to get into the playoffs and see what happens. So maybe like I'm almost ready for a lot of pain now because I feel like the only way out is through and doing the full like I don't know if it needs to be a full rebuild but some sort of rebuild like I and I don't know how much of that is the team or like COVID talking but also guess what COVID's not like disappearing tomorrow so like I look at this team and like who are these people and where did they come from like I don't I I don't do hockey for a living so I'm sitting there going okay, there's their, there's their AHL team. And then there's another team. And like, where are all these people even coming from? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know this well enough to keep track. Waivers all over the place. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not as bad as it was a couple weeks ago. When uh, yeah. o- over the holidays, there was like a couple games that I got to do while I was like dealing with COVID. And I had like the brain fog that came with it. And oh, the Canadians wow. had like four... NHLers left from all the guys on COVID protocol and all the guys on injured reserve and everyone else was like a call up. And I was like, who's number 63 40s. What? Like the whole time I was like, I have no idea who any of these people are because I don't have time to cover the American hockey league. I wish I did, but uh, yeah, it's been a season to say the least. Um, Last, uh, last show uh, last night, we were, supposed to talk about Bergevin being hired in LA and we just ran out of time because we were talking about other stuff. I want to touch on that here because I know Noah also always has Bergevin thoughts, but the first first thing that I thought of when that happened, it wasn't even like, does he deserve to be hired again? Because I think you can make a moral and hockey argument. No, but my thought was the whole Phil Deneau negotiations that happened over the summer and into last season. And the fact that he was rumored to go to LA before the season even started when he was still under contract with the Canadians, it felt like super fishy now. Like obviously there's nothing concrete there, but it stinks a little bit that they offered him one deal in Montreal. He signed for the same amount of money in LA. And the only thing that pushed it towards LA was a no trade clause, which is limited which the Canadians absolutely could have offered him. And now Bergevin's in LA and I'm like, "Mm, maybe he just let that happen. Is he stalking Phil Deneau? He loves Phil Deneau so much. He knew where he was going and (laughs) he sent him there so he could, they could stay together. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that, but 
entirely possible. The thing with Bergevin is I wouldn't put anything beyond him. That's the thing, right? Except maybe seriously listening to other people's opinions and going, oh, it might be a good idea to try something different than what I had in mind. Yeah, it's it's a funny situation. But I, I don't like the fact that he's in LA at all. I don't like the fact that he got another job this quickly. First of all, like, look at the team, even from a purely hockey standpoint. In what world does, and I know the world in which Bergevin gets hired, this world where the same, I don't know how many people get recycled over and over, the same hockey men get recycled over and over into the same limited number of jobs and the top, the moment anyone suggests that anyone else should be hired, everyone goes, oh, but how do we know that they're the best person for the job? Um, so that's why Bergevin has the job again. And then on top of it, and it's funny because I saw that and then there was all the talk about Evander Kane um, to Edmonton, but I was like, oh, well, you know where he's going to end up because Bergevin never met a someone who shouldn't get another chance that he didn't love. So I thought, well, that's where he's going to end up. But uh, I don't know. That part maybe won't happen. <laughs> yeah. 22 paper dolls in the chat says tinfoil hat on here too. I, my tinfoil hat is fully on. <laughs> fully on. I like. I don't think that Bergevin was like machinated, like controlling the machinations of, you know, Phil Deneau is going to go to LA. Like, go here, Phil, go here. I think that it's a possibility that he knew that LA was one of the teams that he was negotiating with and oh. that he was also, you know, planning on going to LA cause he knew that he wasn't going to last in Montreal. He wasn't going to get extended here and that he thought, well, maybe I just don't need to offer him a better offer. You know, like I don't need to match LA's offer. I'll, I, I want to stay with Dino. you know, maybe I'll go there. Like I would not be surprised if when the dust settles on this season, if Brennan Gallagher is an LA King as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'll throw on that, that something that I still don't understand in terms of decisions he made right as he was on his way out. How does Dominic Ducharme have a three-year contract for God's sakes? Like, you know, you're in your last year. The odds that you're getting extended are so, so at the be before the season started. And it's not like there's a bunch of other teams knocking down Ducharme's door about to hire him. You don't need to offer him that kind of contract right now. So how does he get that contract? It doesn't add up to me for someone who's right at the end, possibly, of their decision-making time with a team to do that. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, sorry, Chris, well, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Jeff Wilson's money. Yeah. And uh, if, if you have a coach going in, uh, to a year, I mean, basically, uh, the way I look at it at, is is this: uh, a new GM has to come in and generally comes in to get a, a new coach. And if I'm the owner and I'm looking at it purely from a how much is this going to cost me standpoint, is it cheaper for me to keep to have to pay for a new GM, a new coach, and the previous coach that I just fired, or just keep everybody around uh, as long as possible, and then I'll work it out, you know, three years from now. And so mm -hmm. to me, it was more of a survival technique on the part of Bergevin, just in case, like, I don't think he particularly had an affinity for uh, Dominic Deschamps, but having that sort of 
on the books already allows him. It, it was the same thing in Chicago with like Stan Bowman and uh, Jeremy Collison, which was why would you fire Jeremy Collison? And that was after Stan Bowman left. But why would you fire Jeremy Collison like twelve games into the season? You know, you just do that in the offseason if you don't have any faith in the coach. So then why would you wait till the middle of the season when you can't hire an adequate replacement? And more especially, why would you give them a two-year extension unless you were saying, I need to extend my own career here in this role for another two years, and therefore that is where my confidence level is. I'm sure they, I'm sure the owner would sign off on like a five-year extension. With two years, like, all right, yeah, that seems reasonable enough. Yeah, I, I think there's also an element of doing your friends a favor in the NHL. Like I know Ducharme and Bergevin were relatively close. Um, You could tell that from when like the presser, when he announced Ducharme that he was like, this is the guy, this is our guy. He's brilliant. He's the best. And like, it was more than just, you know, puffing up a recent hire. It's, it was very clear for a long time now that Ducharme was being groomed to be the next head coach. So I think back to when the Maple Leafs, gave Ron Wilson a contract extension and fired him like less than a month later. It was Brian Burke in charge back then. And it was like, it was very clear at the time. Like uh, I believe they gave him the contract extension on Christmas day or something like that. And because of media were like freaking out in Toronto, that they had to leave their families to go to this presser and interview Ron Wilson. And it was just like a pure dick move on Ron Wilson's part to just to like announce it on Christmas day. But uh, he was on the block that season, right? It, it was kind of known that it was a chance that he was going to get fired. He was in the last year of his uh, contract, and Burke just like gave him an extension so that he would have money when he en- ended up firing him. You know, so I think there's some of that that goes on in the NHL as well. But I feel like Chris's point about the leverage is super interesting because I don't know if I've ever thought about it like that. Like that's really, really interesting and some of the chess games that go on behind the scenes that we don't really talk about. I mean, just from the fact that, you know, Bergevin, I mean, like, just think about it, like, the Kings were just sitting around with this high-end position, you know, open for months, and, oh, it just so happens that Mark Bergevin is on the market. We, you know, that was the person, everybody else moves to the back of the line. Bergevin is the person that's going to fill it. I mean, more than likely not, either one of two things was happening, which was Bergevin was already talking to the Kings over the, the summer, and sort of lining some things up. Hey, you know, this is looking kind of shaky. You know, I don't know if I'll be back. You know, even coming off the Stanley Cup run, uh, you know, do you have something in place for me? You know, you go to the owner. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring Mark in. Or Mark hits the market suddenly quicker than expected. Uh, you know, makes, you know, goes through his Rolodex, makes some calls around the league, finds a spot, and he gets paid, you know, six figures or something like that, just magically out of nowhere. Like all of the, it, it's like, could that have not gone to the scouts? Could that have not gone to the arena staff? Like, where, where's this ma- money magically coming from uh, to be able to afford positions like this? And you see this happen on a regular basis for guys like Peter Shirelli and Bergevin and, and Dean Lombardi and so on and so forth. It, they always have these landing spots that just so happen to open up right, you know, after they lose this high profile job. Yeah, I actually I got fooled by uh, Mr. Booth on Twitter because he tweeted <laughs> that he used like Pierre LeBrun's uh, avatar and was like, uh, Jim Benning is going to be hired by the Edmonton Oilers. And I was like, that's definitely true. <laughs> like, that's, that's just the kind of move that the Oilers would make at this point in the season while they're on a losing streak. And yeah, totally fooled. I mean, the Peter Chiarelli thing, I 
I feel like that happened faster than Bergevin going to LA. Like it was like days after it, at least it felt really quick. Right. And he went to like St. Louis for a bit. I don't know if he's still with St. Louis or with someone else now, but uh, I know he still has a job. Yes. Which is absolutely (laughs) wild. Like there's no way somebody who did the absolute hatchet job on the Oilers that he did should be gainfully employed in the NHL anymore. So once you're in, you're never out. I, I was thinking about this. I, it, yeah, I might have, you know, been day drinking a little bit too early, but I was thinking <laughs> about that exactly that. And I was just trying to go back and think through. So I think Shirelli took over right when they were drafting Connor McDavid. And I was trying to go through and think back as to like, okay, I know they messed it up, but I don't remember exactly what moves they would have made differently in that time span that would have resolved the situation. So, you know, you go back and look at like the Bucci contract, like, yeah, people knew it was bad from like day one, but it wasn't as bad as it ended up turning out. Like in terms of projecting, like what that was, it's like okay, he's not a six by six player, but maybe he's you know a six by four player or something like that. So I was like, all right, the Lucci contract is probably like a C minus. The draft picks like not amazing, but you would expect with Connor McDavid and then Leon Drysaddle and the other players that that should you shouldn't be like banking on draft picks as your team building strategy anyway. And then obviously like the big one is the Taylor Hall uh, for Adam Larson trade, which is unforgivable in any capacity. Uh, well, the, I think the Everly that, one too. Everly one was pretty bad. Although Everly one was bad because everyone sort of saw it coming from a mile away. It's like this guy that normally shoots 15% every year shot 10% and now he's not good enough to be on your team anymore. Um, so yeah, so I think there was like, death by a thousand cuts but i think it's more so going back and i asked this this summer where everybody's like you know uh mcdavid and Jarside are in their prime ken holland needs to go all in and i'm like and do what <laughs> like what what are these all-in moves that he would do that would get them like i understand that something needs to be done and everyone's advocating for that but i was like please just walk me through one or two of the moves that would get them across the finish line because i don't see it and I mean, a goalie would probably be a start yeah. <laughs> just any league average goalie <laughs> I mean, true, but, but if, for example, like, it, it, and I think Edmonton was in on, like, Philip Grubauer, but they go out and sign Grubauer, so, you know, six-year contract, because that's what it takes to get a high-end goalie uh, in, in the market nowadays. Now you sign Grubauer, and if he has the same season that he has for Seattle, then you're right back at the at square one. Uh, now, granted, it could have been Jacob Marstrom last year and signing him, and, you know, eventually it, it pans out, but I still don't think that would have been enough. Like, would you have enough money left for Hyman and all that stuff? So I think, like, Yes, in theory, like uh, there were moves that they actively made to make themselves worse, but I don't know what the moves would have been in aggregate that would have made them better than where they are now. Well, because they destroyed or someone destroys a team over X number of years and then they're like, quick, <laughs> fix it. Like that's yeah. what I feel like we're saying about the half. Like, nope, we're in for the long haul. Just just lean back, hope that Jeff Gordon knows what he's doing. <laughs> and just like try to enjoy the development of the kids, assuming Ducharme doesn't destroy them, right? Like Suzuki looks good. Obviously he's, you know, playing with who he's playing with. It's not like there's not, it's slim pickings right now, but it's something, but Caulfield is just like, okay, please, please don't wreck him. Please. Even if this year goes, you know, badly. Um, And it's like, it's like uh, Jake Allen said, right? It's not even about winning games. Just, just, building habits, just letting those kids get their confidence, like, which is what I was saying from the beginning of the year. And I know that the actual players can't come out, you know, 
in <laughs> November and say, season's over. Let's just try to give the kids chances. But like, I'm glad that at least someone said it now. But yeah, give them chances. Let let them develop and just work on that. But nothing's going to get fixed this year. Nothing's going to get fixed probably for, for nothing tangible that we can point to on point production and on making the playoffs is going to happen. I shouldn't say nothing's going to happen, but it's not, if you're looking for a winning team, it's going to be a while because it they've been, he's been destroying the team for years. <laughs> Sorry to say, but it's the truth. I mean, in the long-term contracts that he's handed out as well, like, you know, Chris, you talked about building leverage through strapping a team <laughs> with cash. Oh my God. The UL Armia contract, the Mike Hoffman contract, David Savard, like all these deals. They're not super long-term, but just the whole like three to four year period is just, it's absolutely brutal to trade. But I will say like, I was talking on, uh, I was on the HIO show uh, here for the Montreal Gazette earlier this morning, and it's not out yet. But one of the conversations we had was like how hard it is to trade guys with term uh, in the NHL today. And I was like, at at what at a certain point, like yes, it's true, but also, I don't want to hear any more excuses. That was Bergevin's thing was always like, oh, it's hard to get a center. This isn't PlayStation. You can't do. But like, look at teams that are creative and what they're able to accomplish. Lou Lamorello traded Dion Phaneuf when he was a replacement level player when he had five years left, making seven million dollars a year. And yeah, he gave up Connor Brown to do it, but he also got a second round pick back. That's like friggin' genius. And like, obviously, not everyone is Lou Lamorello because he probably has like compromising pictures of every GM in the league. But <laughs> that's something, that's for sure. Yeah, do something. Like, you got to be able to move guys around. And yeah, it's a flat cap, it's a tough situation, but I'm so done with excuses. I hope this next Habs management <laughs> group just like does work. You know, you always hear about how busy Bergevin was. But the constant <laughs> excuses, it, I don't want to hear that from a general manager anymore. Because going back to the leverage thing, and I don't think this is necessarily the case, but one of the things I've been advocating for the NHL for a while is to um, reduce the maximum years in the contract from eight years to five. Uh, mm-hmm. because, because on one end, you do get locked into the, you know, kind of David being a perfect example, but uh, uh uh, John Klingberg in Dallas talking about, you know, I signed a seven year contract after my rookie year, signed this long contract. stay now I'm finally hitting, you know, my age 29 season and I'm up for an extension. And now the, the stars don't want to talk to me anymore because they're so burned by signing uh, uh, Tyler Sagan and Jamie Benson's contracts and then breaking down immediately that they're not going to talk to me. And I was like, this is bad for everybody because one, you restrict the player movement and player like agency in terms of if Connor McDavid was up for an extension in a year or two, this would be a very different conversation about what happens with the Edmonton Oilers first round pick this year and their top prospect, because that would be out of the door immediately because they have an additional two or three years to just putz around. They're not going to actually commit to doing what they need to do. And so from that perspective, one of the things I am always confused by is, you know, unlike in the NBA, you know, if you trade for a LeBron or something like that, you can dramatically alter the outcomes of your team but as we know even with Edmonton having you know two perennial heart candidates on the roster that's still not enough to make them even a league you know a league average competitor or a contender so you kind of need to do all these like moves in sequence where it's like 
no one deadline trade is probably not going to actually change your Stanley Cup odds that much. But when you do something like Tampa did a few years ago where they got Blake Coleman and Barkley Goodrow in the same deadline, and now you're like significantly increasing your likelihood of winning the Cup or vice versa, which was like what Arizona did last year, what Jeff Gordon did in theory when he was doing his rebuild, which was sort of forced upon him and not an actual strategy on his part. But in 2018, when he traded Rick Nash and he traded Matt Sucurillo, um and traded uh, Ryan Spooner and all of those guys all at the same time, that's what put the team on the path where it is now. And so for the Canadians, it needs to be some of that aggressive, like thought out, like five-step game plan to actually make it work. Or, otherwise, you're just like moving uh, deck chairs around on the Titanic. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent agreed. It has to be a, a large sequence of moves, and you know, not all of it's going to be this season. I think that's going to be something that's going to be disappointing for a lot of fans who want to see like everything shaken up. But with the term that a lot of those guys have, it is going to take until like the draft or next year's deadline to move some of them. Like Mike Hoffman, if he was having a better season, I could see another team wanting him this year. But with the way things have gone, I know he scored tonight. I don't think he's getting traded this season, even though he probably wants out, even though he just signed a contract with them. I, I just can't see it. Cause like, man, have you seen Mike Hoffman's even strike numbers? I know they haven't been good the last couple of years, but it's brutal. It's <laughs> like, you look at uh, what he's done to Nick Suzuki. Anytime he's on his line, it, it's like uh, Suzuki goes from like a break even player playing hard minutes the 30% shares of like expected goals. It is insane. So any team that pays any attention to the metrics is not going for my coffin this year, unless they really, really suck on the power play and just need one middle distance shooter. So it's, it's too bad. What you're saying is that, that uh, Shirelli and Benning aren't GMs anywhere. (laughs) 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 That's what you're telling us. (laughs) Yes. Oh, man. I mean, on one hand, I want the league to be smarter, so I don't want any horrible GMs around. On the other hand, we need someone to take all our bad contracts away. So can we have some horrible GMs somewhere, please? Who are like, yes, give me this player, please. Uh, Here's a, here's a, like, uninformed or dumb fan question. All those contracts with Molson knowing that he most likely wasn't going to extend first rent, doesn't he have to sign off on them? Like, is he just a really bad owner or does he just not care because the monies and the condos that he's building up all around? The I, I don't, I'm just trying to understand. <laughs> well, I think like at the end of the day, Molson's not a hockey person, right? Like he is not, he doesn't have experience really he doesn't really understand the minutia of the game. He's a fan and he's involved, but I think his title as like president of hockey operations is more about ego than being involved. Like I know he has stepped in in certain moments either yeah. to approve something or force something like uh, signing yeah. the uh, Subban deal during the arbitration hearing. But Overall, I think he's just like not a guy who's knowledgeable enough to say like, oh, yeah, signing UL Armia to a four year contract when he's a fourth liner who sometimes can play up to the second line is a really bad idea. You know, like there's you have to be savvy to a certain extent to to know when those things are bad. And I'm just not sure that he is. I mean, 
I mean, half the GMs in the NHL <laughs> aren't, to be frank. I mean, how many years do we need to go through learning about this stuff to realize that you shouldn't sign fourth line guys to term? Yeah, it, it just it never works out. Like, why would you ever sign a guy who's primarily going to be on your fourth line to four years? They break down fast and there's a huge amount of variance in the play of those players. It, it never makes sense. They're eminently replaceable. I mean, so as a hockey guy told him, this is a good idea. And he listened. So mm -hmm. last time, I think we said that I could potentially be a better GM than Bergevin. And now what I'm hearing is that I could be a better owner than this. <laughs> Let's just raise a couple billion dollars and we've got Let's it. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. Fundraiser. Who wants to buy the hacks? I, I, I do. I do respect that from an ownership standpoint because, as a fan and as many fans probably say, you know, the the best owner is just the guy who signs the checks uh, and then steps away. You know, unless the hockey people do the work. And I'm like, if I was on the team, I would. If I'm writing the checks, I would definitely be involved in every decision. I want to be in the trade room. I'm going up to announce like all the draft picks, all of that stuff like that, because I'm writing, you know, for John Tavares, you know, uh, uh, $11 million check to be a glorified second line center. Like I want to be involved in everything uh, just to, for the glory and the ego aspect of it. So I, I respect and understand that. Well, and, and Chris, even if I'm not a hockey guy or I don't understand the details, if it's the last year of my general manager's contract, and I know we haven't, come to some decision on their extension, I might go, oh, I want to pay more attention this year specifically, even if I'm not paying attention the other years. Like, just feel that, like, I'm just thinking management-wise here. I'm not even thinking hockey-wise. Like, oh, I gave this person um, carte blanche to kind of dictate the direction of my team, but this person's about to disappear. Maybe I should be paying more attention specifically this year. I don't know. seems kind of obvious. Well, I mean, and, and the other thing quickly is, you know, when we talk about like the fourth line guys, you know, one, one of the things I say, you know, looking at like the data and all that stuff is like, well, you can't really capture what they're doing, you know, outside of the numbers. And I'm like, yeah, the kind of problem with paying for that, you know, a Mark Andre Vlasic is, is I think who I said this in reference to the kind of problem of paying, paying for intangibles um, that you can't measure is that you can't measure when they fall off. So like, oh yeah, you know, he's doing all the little things. Well, I don't know when he's not doing all the little things anymore, but I'm paying like he is. And therefore, I, I'm suffering immensely uh, as a result. And so, you know, I think uh, uh, the NBA being a perfect example where they are also going through like the COVID outbreaks and they're having these guys off the street just score like 20 points a game. It's like, yeah, I probably don't need to be paying this like random 15 player on my roster, you know, for five years when I could just sign some random guy that was like, you know, doing backflips uh, uh, in, in a poolside of Vegas the other day uh, for a 10 day contract and still get the same results so like i don't understand why nhl gms think there there's any difference in that particular approach but you know far be it for me to say you know i'm not mark bergevin uh thank uh, god excellent <laughs> lucky you <laughs> it's good i know i'm sure you'd love the seven figure salary he was drawn while he was here That'd exactly be, <laughs> an all right deal i i'd take mark bergevin's salary over the last several years uh, we got a question in the uh, stream chat asking, wasn't was Armia always on the fourth line during the playoffs or he wasn't always on the fourth line during the playoffs? Mostly he was. The line that he was on for the most part was uh, stalled between Armia and Corey Perry. It was a great fourth line. And that's the thing about Armia is he is a fantastic fourth liner. Although this year he's been terrible. But 
for the most part in his career, he's a really, really good fourth liner who really excels in that role. And then I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh, I'm sure that uh, you guys have, but for the people watching the Peter principle, right? Where somebody who's really, really good in a role gets moved up because of how good they were in that role, but they're not good enough for the next role up. And then I they get, there. yeah, they, they plateau and they start to look bad. Right. So yeah. I think that's probably the issue with Armia more than anything. And he got overvalued at like, you just should, shouldn't pay fourth liners $3.4 million. It's just not, it's just not smart. And the Canadians did the same thing with Paul Byron, who I think has a bit more versatility than Armia because he does things that are like his skill set is relatively rare. Whereas Armia, I think, does a lot of good little things, but his skill set isn't very rare. Like mm -hmm. if I if I'm a GM, I don't think that I would be paying like above market value for defense because it's just I don't think that there's a lot of evidence that many players impact defense more than a system does. Whereas offense, there's a lot of evidence that individual players impact offense more than a system does outside of a power play, like an even strength, especially. So I would be breaking Narrative. the bank paying for the offensive guys more than the defensive guys. And Bergevin never really learned that lesson. No, it's a narrative. It's a narrative that defense, like, oh, defense wins games, defense wins games. Okay, but how do you get the defense? And it's like you're saying, with systems instead of with a player who's amazing defensively. Because a player who, like, I mean, this is obviously oversimplification, but a player who's amazing defensively, <laughs> when I hear that description, usually it just means that player doesn't have any offensive skill. Yeah, and, and yeah. I don't get why GMs don't understand. I, I always laugh about this every year. It's like, yeah. We need to get more physical. We need to get tough. You know, we're going to sign Ryan Reeves. And it's like, have you ever really tried to figure out why Ryan Reeves is always available to sign? <laughs> like, yeah. Why are these guys always easy to get? You know, why, you know, if you're looking like, yeah, I got to get the, you know, the guys from Tampa Bay. You know, it's never great point that's available from Tampa Bay. Like, they're never going to make their skill guys available. But their physical guys, they're like fourth liners, are always on the market to bring championship experience to the team. It's like, have you ever just sat down and thought, like, you know, when you go to a garage sale, you know, they're not putting out the good china. They're putting out the, like, the old, you know, with the uh, the place with the uh, platypus on it. Like, there's a reason <laughs> why that stuff is for sale at a discount. And so the scoring and the skill is always very hard to get, which is why teams uh, have to normally get that through the draft or maybe if they get lucky through a trade. But <laughs> otherwise, that's hard to get. So from a GM that has to do something, well, I can invest in, you know, this, you know, physicality and grit narrative because I don't have any other tools in my toolbox to make this team better before I get fired and then I have to sign my coach to a three-year contract to hopefully keep myself around as well. The GM yeah. sounds almost like the Quebec premier with the <laughs> all their techniques. Oh, we'll just keep doing this thing because that's the narrative that we're going to pretend is going to fix everything. Yes. Uh... I, I cannot stand this government, but that's probably a topic for another show, because if we start on that, we're going to go for another two hours. Yeah. That's it. But yeah, I, I guess before we wrap things up, I, we should mention uh, Jeff Petrie finally got a goal. Yeah. And he just based on a tiny two game sample, I haven't seen the boneheaded decisions that he had been committing for most of the season. He seems to be back a little bit so hopefully we can see something good at him 
I, I think like I asked uh, heading into last uh, show uh, what you wanted to see from the Canadians over the rest of the season. And a lot of people were just like, just don't be embarrassing, <laughs> have some effort. And at the very least, I think from the second period on, they tried tonight, you know, and so the bar is very low. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> but they may have cleared it in this overtime loss uh <laughs> some i think after the trade deadline we're going to see a lot of players relax a little bit and play some more entertaining hockey but it's going to be a, a a slog until that point i i was really happy for petrie i i mean who knows what physical injuries everyone's dealing with but i wouldn't be surprised if all of it was just like i mean not playing hockey this year has just been a slog period. So I can't, I, it seems, it seems surreal. Like we've just gotten into the habit of it now. We're like, Oh, there's the NHL season and do 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 and COVID protocol. And it's all become normalized, but I can't imagine living through like what they're doing this year. Like just the entire season seems crazy. Just the fact that, Oh, you have no home games, so you're on five million games of road trips in a row because you can't play in your own like country. Just everything about it and players, you know, getting on going on COVID protocol and injuries and back and forth and who knows when they see their families or if they see their families. So I wouldn't be surprised if that would be enough to knock me off for sure. So I, I was really, really happy for Petrie. And yeah, game-wise, um I thought it was going to be a lot worse than it was. It wasn't embarrassing. I mean, I hate to say it because um, <laughs> the first period was so bad, but before they scored, um, I was sitting there and I was like, well, they're being woefully outshot, but I don't feel like they're being pegged into their own end. So I guess that's a good thing. Like that was what was going on in my head. Um, so even that, again, like you said, the bar is, the bar is on the floor, but like it, they did better than I expected, which is sad. Everything's judged on a relative scale this year. <laughs> yes. Very, very relative. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I'll start to wrap it up here. But before I do, I just want to tie something ni nicely in a bow here. Conversation going on in the stream chat saying that uh, they didn't play offense first in the playoffs. And so, like, somebody was saying the best type of defense is offense. They actually did the Canadians did play a very like prevent defense system in the playoffs once they got the lead. But sure. part of what allowed them to be so successful in the playoffs is they were hyper aggressive at the beginning of games and opened up scoring. I, I believe almost every game that they won in the entire playoffs, they scored first and then they would kind of sit back and let Carey Price do the work and let their defense skulls. Right. So and when they were playing that way, when you're playing with the lead and you're playing that prevent defense in the playoffs and you're having success and your goaltender stopping 97 percent of the shots while you're on the penalty kill, it allows you to cheat a little bit. Right. And the Canadians were able to score off the rush a lot on offensive zone turnovers from opposing teams who are pressing, trying to equalize instead of take over games. And that's what was kind of the secret sauce to their success. So it was really, despite what it might have looked like on the surface, they were playing a more offensive style when things were equalized. It's just that their roster didn't allow them to play that for the whole 60 minutes, right? Like they couldn't pile up on teams except for the Jets, who they absolutely dominated. 
but uh, yeah. they they so did you can't actually start that defense. way, right? Like you're saying, you can't start playing defensively. You got to yeah. get out, get the lead first, which is what they did. Absolutely, and yeah, for anybody asking, uh, yes, this is this team is ruining my life shirt. The dangle quote from his book. Mm-hmm. You can find that on the sdpnshop.ca. And also this Game Over mug and all of our other Game Over merchandise. So uh, we'll wrap it up. Uh, first, Chris, and then Noah, tell us where we can find you, where we can find your work, obviously. And uh, thanks so much for joining me here tonight. It was a pleasure to chat with you guys, as always. Yeah, uh, for me, I'm occasionally not deleting my Twitter account <laughs> at yellow <laughs> underscore pinata. Uh, you know, I, I try to do it for the kitties. You know, I can get vitriolic when, when the Blackhawks are not doing well. So just take it, take it offline and, and resolve it there. Uh, but yeah, that's where I'm at. So, um, I'm at hockey hijabi on Twitter and I also have my writing, which is not hockey specific. Oh, my Twitter account is a mishmash of everything. And then, um, my writing at nohabashir.com. And a lot of that's really old writing because it's pretty much just whenever I feel like it, that it ends up on there. All right. Thanks so much. And as I've said the last several shows, uh, honestly, everybody who's tuned in to this show, I love you so much because this season is an absolute <laughs> disaster. And the fact that you're willing to shoot, turn into a post game show for this team says a lot. So uh, thank you so much. We'll see you again on Monday, I believe, is their next game because the weekend game has been postponed. Crazy scheduling the rest of the season here uh excited to chat with you again though because even if the games are terrible the show remains